sermon text this morning is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We'll make a first pass this week, go back through it again next week. So another part 1 and 2 as the last two Sundays have been. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's Word. So we'll spend a day and next Sunday in these first 12 verses where I will preach to myself and you can listen in. Because this is a passage that everyone in spiritual leadership ought to be familiar with. Pastors, elders, deacons, anyone in spiritual leadership, anyone in stewardship of Christians needs this tattooed uh, on our conscience. Because here before us in this passage is what credible spiritual leadership looks like as practiced by one who, the writer, keep in mind, sought to destroy the church before he loved and served it. Before he was, as he says in verse 8, affectionately desirous of you, he was ravenously desirous of Christians, out for blood. Paul was a persecutor of the people of God before he turned participant and protector. So preaching to myself uh, with you listening in, the pastor that I served up in Franklin, south of Nashville, that's where I got my start in ministry post-seminary. Uh, I was just out of uh, uh, Dallas Seminary. It was the mid-90s. And because I had connections in Nashville, my parents, my grandparents, a lot of family in Nashville, uh, Jerry Smith hired me to be his associate at Christ Fellowship in Franklin. Turned out to be a tenure of about five years. Jerry has since uh, retired after a 30-plus ministry at that church, 30-year-plus ministry, and has retired uh, back to Kansas, uh, where he's from. And um, I then briefly church planted in Murfreesboro, and then I've been here for the last 17 years. So that's, that's the career of Cole Huffman all in Tennessee. But I remember the times that we spent together when I was Jerry's associate. He would tell me, and he said this more than once, and so it, it got imprinted. Cole, some of God's churches are unworthy of God's servants. 
and some of God's servants are unworthy of God's churches. And Jerry would say that as an exhortation, that word in verse 11, as a father to a spiritual son in the faith, Jerry was saying to me, never accept the call of the former and don't become the latter. Don't go to a church that chews up and spits out pastors and don't become a pastor who for sake of the incredible vision you think God has given you, you abuse people uh, who work there at the church or the people in the pews. What Jerry was telling me is along the lines Oscar Wilde uh, crafted when he said you can either be an, uh, an example to follow or a warning to heed. And there's both. Back in 2014, I won't say the name of this uh, brother, uh, just out of mercy, uh, but he was a well-known pastor and he resigned uh, a high-profile church. He later went to another city and, and started over uh, in another church there that he, that he started. But in that church that received his resignation, and some of you, if you keep up with the celebrity sphere of church pastors, you'll probably figure out who this is. But in that church that received his resignation, his board, given the, the prominence of this man's ministry, felt that they should issue a public statement in which they said, we didn't ask for his resignation. This is his board speaking. We didn't ask for his resignation, though we knew he was, quote, guilty of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper and harsh speech, and leading the staff and elders in a domineering matter. But, they continued, the pastor had, quote, never been charged with any immorality, illegality, or heresy. Most of the charges involved attitudes and behaviors reflected by a domineering style of leadership, close quote. Well, that statement prompted another well-known pastor to write an article in response to it in which he posed the question, when did arrogance cease to be immoral? If you say moral failing in reference to a pastor or any spiritual leader, nine times out of ten you mean sexual sin, but a domineering style of leadership is also a moral failing. That pastor who took to writing about it to respond was absolutely right. If adultery is discrediting, so too is arrogance, unchecked. The problem is arrogance accomplishes a lot. Arrogance gets successful. Arrogance can get large. Now, there can be arrogant people in small, out-of-the-way places. It's not just about large and small, but we give arrogance a pass, particularly if the man is accomplishing great things, even though he's leaving a lot of broken people in his wake. My Bible reading, just this morning, I, I follow the McShane calendar. I've followed it for 20 some odd years now. It keeps me in the Old Testament and the Psalms and New Testament, uh, Old Testament once a year, Psalms, New Testament twice a year. It's four chapters we read every day and I'm in 1 Samuel. And just this morning's reading, 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel confronts Saul's arrogance by saying, you were once small in your own eyes. Abusive leaders, God's servants unworthy of God's churches, as Jerry put it, if some correctional facility existed for them somewhere, not punitive but rehabilitational, the curriculum that place should teach every day, all day, is 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. It's a seminal text. Or figure out a way to put it in an IV drip 
and get it into the bloodstream of those who are prone to use people. You know, it's not hard to do that. It's not hard to abuse the people of God, to use the status this piece of furniture gives me or the title, the office of elder or deacon that gives uh, a number of us in the room to, to get people in line, you know, to change people, to strong arm them, to, to move them in the direction, to compel them. Too many are too willing to give God's man as they perceive him all the leeway to be large and in charge. You ever catch a whiff of that in me, fire me immediately and follow me to the next place and don't let me serve there. The axiom that I try to live by is God doesn't need me, but he can use me. God doesn't need any of us. Uh, My place is, I'm not irreplaceable. God doesn't need me, but he can use me. And that keeps me small in my own eyes. Because if I go large on the church, I just show unworthiness to be in a position of responsibility. It's not really complicated. I mean, one can repent uh, and go through a restoration process, sure. But arrogance just always seems to go start over somewhere else. Blaming the people that he left. Well, um, we can do better than that. The First Thessalonian way is better than that. I, I come back to this passage a lot. I come back to it in leadership training. Uh, when I do uh, elder training in the church, First Thessalonians 2 is a passage we utilize. But I, I come back to it personally quite a bit because I've learned not to trust myself. And that doesn't mean that, that I'm not trustworthy by God's grace and fear of him, healthy fear of God. I, I am trustworthy. To say I don't trust myself is to acknowledge that I know as a fallen human being that I am never more than two or three steps away in any direction from becoming what I hate which in this case is someone caught up in his own necessity to the church, that, that the church is mine. You know, one of the advantages of coming into a church as a pastor through the years of pastors, one of the advantages of not planning a church, and I planted a church with a partner in Murfreesboro, which is still going and, and, and doing really well. I'm thankful for that. But one of the advantages of being the eighth senior pastor in an 85-year history of this church is uh, the church is never mine. It's never mine. I came in and built on somebody else's foundation. Uh, You don't get caught up in founder's privilege or some things like that. Now, I've I've got a lot of friends who've planted churches and they're humble leaders uh, doing a great job. But that's one of the the good things I've found about coming in later on in a church's life, receiving a call to an established church and going is that you're not not large and in charge. There's always somebody to compare you to. Do I get worn out by that? Sure, a lot of times I do. (laughs) I still have people comparing me to Salto. And Salto's up in heaven saying, quit doing that to him. (laughs) They're in a totally different era, the 40s to the 60s. But that, um, that happens, 
And, I, and so I come back to this passage over and over again because I don't want to get caught up in my own necessity to the church. Um, apostolic ministry was essential ministry. Apostolic ministry is what you have in the New Testament. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, verse 1, chapter 1, to the church in Thessalonica, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, while those three, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were, you talk about your essential workers, they were essential to the community of Christ getting established in these ancient cities, they never acted like they were necessary. They blended in. They led, but they also blended in. They advanced the gospel accessibly. Anyone could get to them. It didn't take you two or three months to see Paul. He was right there. And so were the others. They weren't there to be served, but to serve in the interests of these Christians we're reading about all the way back in the first century, all the way out now to us in the 21st century, all of us rooted in everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. They weren't there even to straighten everybody out. If you grow up in church circles as I did that tend to be more fundamentalist in makeup, you think the job of the pastor is to straighten everybody out. And so when you see things you don't like, you come to the pastor and you, you need to straighten this person out. You need to step on people's toes week in and week out. I mean, you just, you, if you get formed in masochistic Christianity, uh, that's what you think real preaching is. That you get punched to the solar plex. Is that the solar plexus, Jeffrey? Is that where he is right here? <laughs> he knows anatomy better than I do. You just get punched in the gut all the time, and that's, that's, that's good ministry. Yeah, the pastor that's always on our case. There's a time for correction. The, the nature of good ministry will address problems, but I got to tell you, I've lived to regret every time I've tried to straighten somebody out or times that I have uh, tried to straighten the church out because inevitably in those times and trying to get the rust off, I hurt the finish. I come across angry or bothered or I shame people and I've done it. I try not to do it anymore, but the times I've done it, I've tried to learn from because I've, I've learned that not only is that just unseemly for somebody in stewardship of the church that belongs to Jesus, it's, none of that leads to lasting change, to shame people into changing. The nature of ministry that catalyzes lasting change and closeness to Jesus, the nature of effective ministry is nurture. That's, that's what these 12 verses are in summary. The nature of effective ministry is nurture. Look at the imagery Paul uses in the passage. Mother and father. Verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verses 11 and 12, for you know how like a father with his children. You got mom in verse 7. You got dad in verse 11. Verse 12, like father, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you. You bear dad's name. So dad exhorts you and charges you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. That's verse 12. So when you put the mom and dad imagery together, and we'll come back to that more next week, mom and dad imagery. But just to mention it this week, when you put that mom and dad imagery together, what do you get? Nurture. The nature of effective ministry is nurture. 
the leaders we want over us in the Lord. And I use that language from chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Among you and over you at the same time. It's a difficult thing to balance. But he says that in chapter 5, verse 12. <clears throat> we'll, of course, get to that later. But the leaders that we want over us, the leaders we want, are nurturing leaders. Now, let's talk about this, what this means, utilizing how Paul in chapter 2 is filling out what he said in chapter 1, verse 5. The last two weeks we've been in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 5, looking back at it. The end of chapter 1, verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so he takes that line out for a walk. First 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about here's what we were. We proved to be nurturing leaders, if you want it in a summary. <clears throat> now, nurturing is not coddling. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't think I'm sick. <clears throat> I think I need water. I didn't want to have to pull the water out, but I need it. Sorry. Time in. Nurturing is not coddling. <clears throat> he says in verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. That's not coddling language. The exhortation is lighting a fire under you. The charging you is, is solemn. It comes with seriousness. Not taking yourself so seriously, but taking the truth of God seriously, taking God seriously. He says in verse 12, uh, it's not coddling, nurturing. Nurturing is not telling people what they want to hear. Trying to please everyone, that's impossible. If you want a clinic on that, just, you know, fill these shoes during COVID. <laughs> just, I've got friends in ministry all over the city and all over the country, and we're all comparing notes. Yeah, it's the same thing everywhere. Nobody's happy. Everybody's tired. Everybody's got an opinion on mitigation strategies and whether Fauci speaks out of both sides of his mouth and whether we should be doing this, whether we should be doing that. And guess where it all comes, where all the concentric circles meet? Pastor. <laughs> you should have never closed the church. You, should, you shouldn't require us to wear a mask. You, you should require us to wear, I mean, it's just all over the map. And every time somebody sits with you and shares their belief, they're very passionate about it. They want you to see it their way. Well, I mean, you have to put on the big boy pants and just do it. It's part of life. Conflicting opinions. So nurturing is not trying to please everyone. You're not going to do that. It's not even trying to please one or two important someones. I've a couple of times, because I'm married, watched uh, Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen's uh, novel. And... Um, there's certain movies you just have to watch when you're, when you're married. That's one of them. And, and, uh, and Mr. Collins uh, is the most simpering wimp of a minister that ever existed in literature. And the few times that I've watched Pride and Prejudice, I've been entertained by Mr. Collins because he basically pastors a church of one. Read the book or watch the movie and... Lady Catherine de Bourgh, that's, the, that's the, the patroness of the church back in an era in which uh, basically had one wealthy person who was controlling the church. And, and he will do anything she needs him to do. And everybody else is just there for backdrop. That's coddling. 
The nature of nurture doesn't cater like that. What is it, nurturing ministry? If I may borrow here something from the sixth century. So we got the first century, we're in the 21st century, borrow something from the sixth century from a guy named Benedict. Benedict was the abbot of a monastery. That's the term for the leader of, of, a, of a group of monks. And back in the sixth century, you had a lot of monasteries and you had um, a lot of those leading monasteries uh, not well. And Benedict began to realize that brothers in monasteries were being uh, either just led poorly or being abused in some cases. And so Benedict wrote, um, and you can look it up, it's called Benedict's Rule, and he wrote a couple of paragraphs of just expectations of what um, the leader of a monastery should be about for the brothers uh, that, that he led. And one of the ways Benedict put things, I I've, um, keep coming back to myself. He said, those in spiritual leadership should so arrange everything, here's Benedict's words, that the strong have something to yearn for and the weak nothing to run from. Now, not only is that just beautifully put, there's a lot of wisdom in that. A spiritual leader should arrange things such that the strong have something to yearn for and the weak have nothing to run from. Now, I realize I'm going to utilize that statement this week and next. Those will be our two categories, strong and weak. And I realize that strong and weak are judgments. So if I said to someone, I'm not like this, but if I said to someone, well, I think you're a weak Christian, I would surely offend them. I'm not tactless like that uh, with people, but for sake of point, in churches, you have both strong and weak, just for sake of categorization, thinking this out. By strong, I'm thinking of those who take their faith seriously who involve themselves in discipleship, who pursue God passionately, that is, with love. They, they, they know they love the Lord. Strong is actually soft when you think about it, and in that they are soft to God. The strong Christian remains soft to God. Even if God's directing them to something they don't want to do, they, they do it. This is strength. Strength, in essence, is people who demonstrate a living relationship with Jesus. Uh, Jesus has their whole person, their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, their, their income, their outgo, all of it. And then in churches, we also have those whose faith is more or less nominal. It's there, they believe, but it's, uh, it's underdeveloped or they've hardened in some direction where they're no longer really teachable. They know what they know. Don't confuse them with anything else they need to know. Uh, there's never any repentance because they're never wrong about anything. This is weak. Um, and if their faith was ever directly opposed, it would not withstand the opposition. In other words, if it ever costs something to be a Christian, to name the name of Christ, they, they wouldn't... They wouldn't They'd be out. Put all that under weak. For sake of harnessing all that we have here in these 12 verses, taking from this passage not just what I need as a leader, but takeaways for us all. Let me use strong and weak as categories today and next time. Categories through which to run this passage that credible 
spiritual leadership gives the strong something to yearn for. The people who want more of Christ get more of Christ. And the weak, nothing to run from. Those who could be drawn in are not pushed away. And here's where I say apologies over my career. To those that I know I've pushed away. I wish, uh, I wish my younger self knew some things my older self now knows and wouldn't have committed, but living and learning. First, the strong. By strong, again, I essentially mean people who demonstrate a living relationship with Jesus. Just taking the 12 verses that we've got here, what did Paul and Silas and Timothy look like and, and what could we look like that gives the strong something to yearn for? Well, a uh, couple of things under this today and then a couple more next week. Take the boldness factor. Look at verse 2. See verse 2 again where Paul says, we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I, very first sermon three weeks ago now, I guess. Um, I gave you the situation in Thessalonica. Go back and read Acts chapters 16 and 17. You'll see how they were treated in Philippi. You'll see how they were treated in Thessalonica, that Paul has to go under the cover of darkness because it's just that bad a place. Jew and Gentile both making it so, the opposition. So he says in verse 2 here that we had boldness. I mean, they've been, uh, they've, their wounds from uh, the Philippian uh, context are still fresh. These guys arrived in Thessalonica with black eyes and, and whip marks. They'd been through it, literally. And Thessalonica wasn't any easier, but he says, we didn't cower back, we didn't shy away. We came into the next place God assigned for us to go. And we were bold to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Boldness is something the strong are, are drawn to. Not boldness as recklessness or boldness masquerading as arrogance. The spirit of Christ within us draws back from that. Nor is it always boldness. We're not talking about speaking your mind or always touting your opinion. You know, well, I'm bold, so I always speak up. That, that can be tactless. The kind of boldness on display in these leaders that we can display also is a boldness that gives the strong something to yearn for. Which means in this context, the boldness of gospel witness in the face of real opposition. I mentioned earlier I'm reading 1 Samuel now. And so this week, I'll be reading about the relationship of David and Jonathan, Saul's son. When Jonathan saw David take on Goliath... The narrator's already given us a few chapters before that Jonathan's own boldness to take on a Philistine garrison with his armor bearer. And he killed some, something like 20 to 30 men himself. And so then three chapters later, we get David moving out against a giant of a man and Goliath. And it's not just the sling, the rock and the sling hitting the forehead and, and felling the giant. It's that David also presents a kind of gospel to Goliath that you have defied the, the living God of Israel and therefore I am the instrument of judgment, a gospel that doesn't offer any redemption in that case, just the bad news. 
And it says, when Jonathan saw David go out and face the giant, his heart was knitted to to David's. Strength attracted strength. Strength draws strength. He saw somebody like him. Strength looks like boldness to keep the faith when no one else is doing so or there's no benefit for doing so. Usually it's not that there's no one else. It's usually there's just no immediate benefit. Giving the strong something to yearn for. What else do we find here as an example of that? Well, look at verse 9. Again, we'll come back and rehash some of this next week. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, and by the way, there's about six mentions of you know, you remember, you were witnesses. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. While you've got your eyes there in verse 9, look back up at the last line in verse 6. We could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What is he talking about? The Thessalonican church was not a wealthy place. They were working, but they were not wealthy as opposed to Corinth. In Corinth, you could uh, assert apostolic privilege. In other words, you could have the church take care of you. So you could focus all of your time and energy on building disciples, preaching and teaching. Well, Thessalonica wasn't like that. So what he's referring to here in verses 6 and 9 is literally working. They could have asked this church to wait on them. They're guests. Ancient hospitality required you to take care of your guests, but they knew they'd be a burden. And so in Thessalonica, they were going to need to support themselves. And that meant doing what needed to be done. So let's call this the strength of responsibility. Because that's what responsibility does. Responsibility does what needs to be done. Now, there's such a thing as being over-responsible. There's such a thing as never taking breaks. There's such a thing as being a martyr to your own volunteerism, your own self-giving. But what's displayed in this passage is the strength of responsibility. How are we going to get ministry done among these people as we found them in the community they're in? We're going to go get tent-making supplies and ply our trade. Paul was a tent-maker. And so he put up shop because that's what these believers needed him to do. They can take care of us in Corinth. They have the means there, but here in Thessalonica, they don't. Even though they were a marvelously generous church, they gave out of their poverty, he says to the Corinthians later. They don't have the means to support us, so we'll set aside that privilege of receiving support and work alongside them and we'll minister to them that way. We'll clock in in the morning with them and clock out in the afternoon and then we'll meet together. That affection that he says in verse 8 they had for these Christians, I guarantee a large measure of that was due to their working alongside each other. Contributing to the the good needs of, the good and the needs of, of that particular body of believers. That's a strength. So they led well. How did they lead? They gave the strong in the church something to yearn for and the boldness of staying with the gospel even in the face of severe opposition and in the responsibility they displayed doing what needed to be done instead of saying that's not our job saying I'll, I'll, we'll get down in there with you and, and we know that that's what you need. They gave the strong something to yearn for. Now what about the weak, the other side of the ledger? Giving the weak nothing to run from. Notice verses 3 and 4 under weak. 
Verse 3, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God, verse 4, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. On into verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. There's accountability in that. Accountability is an example of giving the weak nothing to run from. You you didn't have to fear them exploiting you. You didn't have to fear them manipulating, driving you, using you in service to their incredible vision. No, they, they weren't making a name for themselves. They were serving. The weak will run from unaccountable leaders, as the strong will too. Strong will probably more directly confront them. The the weak will uh, turn cynical. I mean, if if you've been in a church where there was spiritual abuse uh, of some kind, a, a leader who was unaccountable in some way, it can turn you cynical. It can turn you overly guarded, suspicious of pastors and elders and deacons and anyone in an in a oversight position. And you may have cause to be suspicious. I'm not saying you don't. We all come from varied backgrounds here and experiences. But credible spiritual leadership invites trust. Uh, not because that person can't fail you, but because the safeguards and the checkpoints are in that, that person's life. Uh, that leader can tell you about who keeps them in check. You know, if an elder board uh, ever admits, and I'm glad to serve a church where this would not be the case here, but if an elder board ever says, you know, we knew our pastor was spiteful and conflict and defensive and argumentative and ran roughshod over people and really, really didn't really do anything about it, then, then the failure of that ministry is as much on the board as it is on the guy that they didn't keep in check. No success in ministry is worth treating people badly. Credible spiritual leadership is never going to enable those who are going to be hard on people, even if they look like they're accomplishing a lot for God. I say again, God does not need us, but he can use us. And the people aren't there for the leaders. The leaders are there for the people. The New Testament is so clear on this. The Old Testament, too. When Paul says here in verse 3, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, you deceive people when they're there to be used by you. Or when you flatter them, which is telling them what they want to hear. That's basically what flattery is. It's, it's building you up, buttering you up, so you'll do something for me in return. It's reciprocal in a, not, a, not a good way. He says in verse 5, we didn't come as a pretext for greed. We never gave the weak something to run from because we were in check. We were accountable to God. We were accountable to one another as an apostolic cohort. They were accountable to uh, other churches. And so the strong never had Jesus eclipsed by leaders who needed to stand down. Chasing people off who might otherwise get near to the Lord and want a living relationship with Jesus if the leader is not in the way. And ultimately, that's what makes the difference for the leader himself. Does he have a living relationship with Jesus? It's demonstrable. Does the leader have a tender conscience? Does the leader own when he's wrong? 
and make apology or just spin self-justifications. I'll say this and we'll be done. I say it often, it's important to say often, Jesus is our Savior before his example. There's an order in that. The order is intentional. If you try to be Christ-like without Christ ever being your Savior, trying to approximate the example of Jesus, which is perfect, by the way, will crush you. And so Jesus has to be our Savior before his example. Credible leaders who nurture people in Jesus' name are good examples just because they know and they rest in that they have a good Savior. And so they don't have to drum it up all the time. They want everybody else to know that Jesus is a good Savior too. When you get close to that leader, you find his Lord. He should make you want to stay close. He should make you want to draw near to Jesus Christ. That's all we could ever really want from those who lead us in Christ. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We'll sing and be dismissed to the rest of our Sunday. Father, you have led us in Christ so kindly. You have not given us what our sins deserve. You could have expressed your wrath on us, but you let your son take our place. And we thank you for the kindness of that, the generosity of that, the way you have given to us such that we cannot repay. And those of us you've put in offices, in responsible roles in the church, Lord, help us as people who know that we have failures and flaws and bad days ourselves to always uh, display your spirit who is maximizing Jesus in our midst and where we do not, that we would be marked by repentance and a turning from what doesn't build your people to what does. Father, help us in this. We, we need your help. We are incapable on our own. We make a mess when we tear off in a direction. And Lord, that you would uh, show us the directions we should go in, as you do in your word in this passage, and that we would then meditate and dwell in that, rest in that, and it would show forth in our actions. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.